It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the deadly fire at an FSB border service department building in Rostov-on-Don, analyse the recent spate of mutinous videos shared by Russian soldiers, and explore American strategy in Ukraine and around the world. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in faith. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 16th of March, one year and 20 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, our assistant comment editor Francis Sternley, our Russia correspondent Natalia Vasilyeva, and our guest is Giselle Donnelly, a senior fellow in defence and national security at the American Enterprise Institute. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from the war. Well, hi David and hi everybody. So let's start in Russia. So the city of Rostov-on-Don, it's uh, near the Ukrainian border, about 50 k's over the border, 100 k's-ish, due east of Mariupol. Something's gone bang there. It's a very large fire, possibly the result of an explosion. We're not entirely sure. I think Natalia's going to be able to update us a little bit later. But um, there is a very large fire in an FSB building, which is part of the domestic security apparatus in Russia, in a border service building there. The reports of, of dead and, and injured. We don't know, don't know what, this is, what this is, so there's no point speculating, except to put it in the context of other mysterious fires, explosions that have taken place in Russia and elsewhere that we think are part of either partisan activity, local uprising, or, or poss- possibly, unlikely, possibly a, a cross-border operation from Ukraine. But we don't know that bit. What we do know, it's on our website at the moment. Have a look at that. It's on social media. You'll see a very large fire in the border surf- service building, part of the FSB in Rostov-on-Don. Second, let's go to Poland now. So the domestic Polish security agencies have dismantled what they say is a Russian spy ring that have been placing hidden cameras on rail- railway r- routes 
you know, easy for you to say. Railway railway lines. Polish counterintelligence apparently arrested six people. So the, the defence minister said, he's speaking today, six foreigners working for the Russian Secret Service allegedly preparing acts of sabotage in Poland, arrested after hidden cameras were found, placed on the railway lines and junctions in the area to the southeast of the country, around the... Um, this is according to Polish radio station RMF. Dozens of devices were installed, which were transmitting data, mainly in the southeast of the country, near the uh, Rezhov airfield, which is one of the main um, po- points of, of importing foreign military hardware before it's transferred onwards into Ukraine. So we know there's been this, there's been this, this huge un- unseen war in Eastern Europe, Poland especially, as, as Russia, most likely the GRU, are looking for the routes into the country, into Ukraine, that the Western donated kit is going to transit. And they would then they would then try to identify those routes, pass it on to their people inside Ukraine for subsequent targeting. So we know that there's a huge counterintelligence operation to try and find these people. And that looks like what this is. This is part of still staying in Poland. Just finally, before I take a break, Polish President Andrzej Duda, he's been speaking today and he said that the first batch of MiG-29s are going to be in Ukraine soon. He says they're going to be sending Poland will send four MiG-29s with others to follow. The first four will be sent very soon. We will talk other updates a bit later. Thank you very much. Dom, Natalia, can I come to you just quickly? Is there any more context or information you can add on this breaking story, this developing story of this of this fire in Rostov-on-Don? Hi, everyone. Yes, sure. Initially, the governor of Rostov, when he's in his first statement since the uh, fire, said that it's that he said that early reports indicate that at first there was a fire which was caused by faulty electric wiring, as he explained it, which somehow the, the fire affected a like the, the fire was nearby a fuel tank, and apparently there was a fuel tank on the premises that caught fire and exploded. Now, we're beginning to see first social media videos which could shed the light on this theory or on suggestions that it might have been another act of Ukrainian sabotage. There was a good social media found posted by the Russian media outlet Baza, which was shot by a man who lives in a building just across the road. So he's filming from high, or from pretty high up. Apparently he lives in a high-story building, unlike the FSB building, which is just two stories high. And you can see the building uh, smoldering. You can see just uh, a bit of white smoke coming from the building. And the man says that he had heard the explosion. The explosion was, was very powerful. You can see that there are basically no windows not a single glass in the window in the window frames left you can see piles of brick and wood lying on the side of the building and that looks very different from later footage that we see of uh, pitch black smoke towering from the building so it looks like whatever happened it happened inside that building and again i'm not familiar with a typical master plan or blueprints of how you build a border guard's office but it looks like the explosions definitely happened inside a building which makes one very skeptical about the claim that somehow it was caused by an explosion of a um, fuel tank because i don't know why would you put a fuel tank inside a building so that's that's my take on it thank you very much for that natalia and it sounds as if we're going to be coming back to this in the days to come as we try and work out what what exactly happened but thank you dom and natalia dom can i 
come back to you. We've been speaking a lot this week over the incident in the Black Sea between uh, Russian jets and an American drone. There's been a few updates there. Can you talk us through them? Yeah, so first of all, John Kirby, the U.S. national security spokesman, he said that the U.S. military have, quote, well, they took steps, they have taken steps to protect the information and minimise any effort by anybody else to exploit the drone for useful content, unquote. That was backed up by General Mark Milley, who's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the, the senior military officer in the U.S. system. He said the drone has probably sunk to between four and 5,000 feet, Below the Black Sea, he says it probably broke up and said, quote, there's probably not a lot to recover. As far as the loss of any sensitive intelligence as normal, we took mitigating measures. So we are quite confident that whatever was of value is no longer of value, unquote. Now, I mean, I'm not entirely sure how this how they would do this because the product would be would be off boarded. It wouldn't sit there. It's not like I mean, the, the tornado jet that we used to fly and the Germans and Spanish and Italians. I mean, they still they only went out of service two years ago, um, but they still flew with VHS cassettes on board, um, hanging on to the or recording the data. Incredible. In the, in 2019, still had a VHS cassette. But I don't think there's anything actually on an MQ-9 Reaper drone. So I don't know quite how much sensitive in information as in data there would be that that the US would need to get rid of and I don't know how you, how you do that other than burning out circuits or what have you and please the the those listening much more expert in this than me please let, let me know if what you think of that so I mean I don't know what kind of methodology they can take to, to protect the um, the technology on the drone that would be that would have been hoover, hoovering up all the data but I mean as as you'd expect what they these things would not be built without some consideration given to what happens if it if it crash lands in enemy territory. So I'd be fascinated to learn what practically they can actually do. Now, from the Russian Security Council Secretary, Nikolai Petrushev, in televised comments, he said um, that they're going to try, that Russia's going to try and get the drone. He said, I don't know whether we'll be able to retrieve it or not, but it has to be done and we will certainly work on it. Obviously, they want to try and try and grab it for whatever they can. Now, they're still sticking to the line. Russia is still sticking to the line that the Su-27 jet did not collide with the drone and that it, the, 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 the Reaper crashed due to sharp manoeuvring. I think that can now sort of put to bed. There's footage emerged on social media that uh, the US authorities have released. It's on our website. You can find it. That suggests otherwise. From that, you can see... You see imagery from the camera on the drone that shows a number of passes by by an Su-27 that's dumping fuel. So we had reports that it was that they were jettisoning fuel either to mess up the the, the camera and the other electronic inf- uh, the sensors on board, or to try and muck up the engine intake and, and whatever it was. But it looks as if well, there's two things. Firstly, you can see that the the aircraft the Su-27 gets exceptionally close to the drone and possibly does even even hit it the feed breaks up before before you see the thing collide but judging by the the weight of an su-27 and the speed it's going and the the sort of aspect as it's coming towards the camera i'd be very surprised if it didn't actually connect with the with the drone itself but more than that the fuel that's dumped in the air in the vicinity of the drone that indicates what's happening to the airflow i.e what's what's happening to the wake turbulence behind the su-27 a a very well not a very large aircraft but quite heavy and going at exceptionally fast so the wake turbulence what the the mess in the air the the currents in the air behind that behind that um jet that could easily have just have just knocked the drone out of out of the air it's just or rendered it so 
out of control that, that by the time the controller back in Creech managed to exert any control it was already heading down to the sea potentially but the the, the fuel dumped in the in the airflow suggests that so have a look at the video on our website you'll see it elsewhere as well and uh, and you can make your own mind up now also yesterday u.s defense secretary lloyd austin he reported that he actually um, spoke with his counterpart sergey shoigu and told him in uncertain terms he said quote the united states will continue to fly and to operate wherever international law allows unquote so that's where we are at the moment. I just want to finish briefly on this section with, by responding to a question from a listener, from Calvin. Thank you, Calvin, very much for uh, for getting in touch. And Calvin asked, so yesterday I was I was suggesting that that Russia's unilaterally imposed temporary airspace regime, as they as they called it, they said the drone was flying in their temporary airspace regime, and therefore it's fair game. And I said that's absolute hogwash. You know, it's not for them to go around inventing new international civil aviation organization rules of the air but calvin said well hang on how's that any different from the british maritime exclusion zone that was set up in the falklands war and that i've looked into it and the difference is that in the maritime exclusion zone case firstly there was a message passed from the from britain via the swiss embassy in buenos aires to the argentine government which referred specifically to argentine military units predominantly naval naval vessels but also aircraft as well uh, and said that they would be targeted if they entered that maritime exclusion zone and the british claimed that or 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 put that out under the right of self-defense cited by article 51 of the united nations charter so they were basing it in law and they were very specific that it was argentine military vessels as in a country with whom britain was in armed conflict now in this case Russia has not and dare not, I I venture, issued such a threat to, well, the US, but every country in the world to say, you know, it's you're you're all fair game in this area here. I mean, they they simply couldn't do that. They are desperate to show that the US and the Western partners are trying to expand this war. So if they said, right, here we go, here's some new lines on the map and we are we are happy. We we will be able to shoot at anything that comes in there. I mean, they just simply could not do that. That would be such an escalation that, that even they would not well never say never but i I don't think they'll take that step and they would also risk open ridicule by citing article 51 of the un charter the the united nations that kind of you know day one week one lesson is don't go invading other countries they've absolutely ridden roughshod over that so if they start trying to claim their rights to take action under various articles in the un charter it, it would just be it would just be laughed at internationally so i don't think russia will go anywhere near trying to lay any legal basis for this claim that there, there's some new bit of airspace that only they're allowed allowed into. And I think there is a very specific legal difference between what they're trying to say over the Black Sea and what the British did in the Falklands. But Calvin, thanks so much for your question. Um, yeah, we do, we do read every email. Thank you very much for that, Dom. And thank you, Calvin, for sending in the question. Francis, would you be able to talk us through the diplomatic updates that you've been looking at? So I want to start with a diplomatic row that has broken out this morning. So France have been accused of slowing down the European Union's plans to replenish Ukraine's dwindling artillery shell stocks, of course, something that we've talked about at length on the podcast, by demanding the munitions be manufactured inside the European Union. Now, 
Sources have told The Telegraph that Paris wants guarantees that the €2 billion deal to jointly procure the weapons would only benefit firms based in the EU. Now, this comes off the back of considerable talks over this new scheme to purchase 1 million artillery shells to bolster supplies to Kyiv and fill depleted national armories. Under the current scheme, member states would be given cash incentives to centralise and coordinate procurement among themselves in in the hope of placing orders large enough to convince arms manufacturers to ramp up productions. But French officials are arguing that only defence firms based in the EU should be allowed to access those lucrative new contacts. And critics of the French are saying that this warns, you know, a warning that this will slow down support for Ukraine because the production capacity would be readily available outside of the bloc and that this could be done more more quickly and obviously time is very much of the essence and one EU diplomat has said that many member states presented different opinions that in France, is a very diplomatic way of putting it, if we want to act immediately, which is necessary, allowing non-EU companies into the scheme is very, very important. Now, what's interesting is that since Germany have also weighed in here, but specifically the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who has pledged quicker EU action, he said it's very important that we quickly supply Ukraine with the necessary munitions. He said member states would pass measures to ensure even better continuous supplies. And most importantly, we are prepared to open up procurement projects to other member states as well. But I think there's just a slight hint within what he was saying there that there's a a bit of a tension with what the France perspective is. And I do wonder whether we're seeing some of that spill over. So I suspect there'll be some developments in that space in the coming days. Now, just in other sort of diplomatic political news, President Zelensky has posted a note on Telegram today to commemorate a year since the Mariupol theatre bombing and I'll read in full what he says. A year ago, Russia deliberately and brutally dropped a powerful bomb on the drama theatre in Mariupol. Next to the building was the inscription Children, which was impossible to overlook. Hundreds of people were hiding from the shelling there. Step by step, we are moving towards ensuring that the terrorist state is fully held to account for what has been done to our country and our people. And I would just point listeners to a piece we've republished today from Morton Risberg, who sent a dispatch from Mariupol several months ago, where he visited, and this is the title of the article, Russia, the site of Russia's worst war crime. Now, he was allowed access to the city by, in order for them essentially to advertise the reconstruction efforts that are taking place there. And I believe we spoke about this piece at the time, but it really underlines this piece, this piece uh, just quite how horrific what occurred in Mariupol is and continues to be. Over 600 people were killed in that theatre bombing and um, the civilian suffering is extreme. He even visits in the article the enormous, one of the biggest in Europe, I believe, cemeteries that have been built as a consequence of the battle for Mariupol. Close to 4,000 graves in the location back in December, but there may be as many as 10,000 or more as we now obviously enter the new year. So I would recommend listeners read that piece it's 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 a very moving one and insightful also as i say as to what russia are actually doing in mariupol in an attempt to win the population around there which particularly includes investing in technology and building reconstruction efforts in attempt to um, solidify their own position there and so just finally as well i was quite interested in putin's remarks today urging russian billionaires and the business elite to invest in new technology production facilities and enterprises to help russia overcome what he says are Western attempts to 
destroy its economy. He's having a serious meeting with numerous Russian billionaires, those that are still in the country. And of course, there are many who've had to go back to Russia as a consequence of the sanction program conducted by the West. And he says that uh, so far, Russia has defied attempts of of the West to effectively uh, destroy the Russian economy with its sanction program. But he's now eagerly trying to encourage billionaires to invest in the Russian state. Again, revealing, I think if all was dandy with the Russian economy, he wouldn't necessarily need to be talking about this and trying to persuade them to invest. So I think that's revealing in and of itself. But nonetheless, an interesting one to try and put forward this brave face in what seems to be an increasingly economically challenging picture for Russia. But that's, I'm sure Natalia has a few thoughts on that as well. So I hand over to her, David. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Francis. And Natalia Vasilieva, it's really good to have you back on. There's a, a number of stories We'd, we'd like to hear your thoughts on. I mean, you've been looking at mobilisation and morale issues with Russian troops, repression in Belarus, Russian plans in Moldova. Before we get on to those, is there anything you'd like to add to what Francis and Dom have said? Yeah, probably on the last point about the tycoons and so-called oligarchs who gathered this uh, morning. Obviously, it's quite a Faustian deal that, that, they, that they strike. A lot of those people who were in the meeting, uh, eagle-eyed reporters have already seen a couple of people there, including German Hahn and Dmitry Mazepin, who are contesting European sanctions in court while meeting Vladimir Putin. Maybe it doesn't sound like the most logical thing to do. But it was several of them who are trying to get sort of back on international market, getting their assets unfrozen at the same time, shaking hands with Vladimir Putin. That's quite bizarre. But again, for the context, all those people have giant business empires. They have lost a lot already. A lot of them have lost access to some of the international markets. But the fortunes they've made are so enormous that we're talking about. I think the best recent figure I've seen is that the the capitalization lost by the 12 months of war is something like 20% of, of what those people, of what those empires are worth. You know, they, they didn't lose... 50-60% of their money and they're still locked. So of course they're going to cling on to it and they're going to try as hard to see how they can survive in uh, in Putin's Russia. Thanks very much for that extra context, Natalia. It's hugely appreciated. Can we start with your work and your research on the sort of morale and mobilisation issues in, in the Russian army? I mean, you've been looking at a number of videos and appeals coming from troops that don't feel, don't well, that, that don't want to fight, it seems. Um, what have you found? Yeah, it really jumped out at me and it started, those videos just started to to pile up a couple of weeks ago. That was happening around the same time that we were hearing Ukrainian generals and Ukrainian soldiers talking about the so-called human wave attack, which is when, say, the Ukrainian army is defending a certain position. At some point, they get targeted with artillery and then a huge number of soldiers are just thrown into a blind assault without any support and on on essentially a suicide mission. And the Ukrainian troops have been telling us that they were overwhelmed by that. That tactic does allow certain territorial gains and Russians have been advancing somehow, not as, as, as much as they have hoped, but it has been helping a lot. So I wanted to look... On the other side of those human waves attacks, like to see what's happening from the Russian side, what I found, I found a lot of videos apparently filmed by men who were about to 
become key players in those human wave attacks. And apparently a lot of them have been thrown in those blind assaults before. And we have seen them confronting their commanders and speaking quite plainly about it, that they didn't want to be used as cannon fodder, as meat, as they called it. And uh, there was a couple of astonishing videos in which the soldiers said that, you know, they would rather find a taxi, hitch a ride and go home than, than keep on fighting. Again, I'm putting aside the issue of values, morals and what they were doing there in the first place. I mean, let's, let's not talk about it here. But obviously it shows that a lot of them who were willing to serve for whatever reasons, they said that they were freshly mobilized. They were former civilians. They had no... One interesting thing that also surfaced in, in my research there is the fact that a lot of those mobilized men, uh, I mean, they are from, from, from Russia. Necessary experience, obviously, uh, had no appetite for a suicide mission. And they said, you know, we would be happy there patrolling the area. And they were, they have been used widely throughout the Eastern Ukrainian Front by the commanders who until recently, until a year ago, were um, Russia-supported separatists from, from, from Donetsk and Luhansk. And apparently there is now quite a bit of friction and local guys from Donetsk, to them, those newcomers, to those Russian arrivals, they, they feel like strangers. And apparently they, they are, the Donetsk commanders feel that those soldiers are expandable and they would rather use up them for those suicide missions than the local guys. The experts that I speak to, people who've been, who've really done quite, quite an astound, astounding job going through uh, scouring social media to and verifying those videos, they told me that we still... We're seeing a lot of those videos, but, you know, if you ask me, is this a beginning of an end of the Russian army? Is Russian army getting mutinous? Yes and no. I mean, we're seeing those protests. Some of them are quite astonishing, but it doesn't mean that the Russian army is going to fold up and um, just leave. We're not seeing this right now. Another story I wanted to talk about is from Belarus, which was a huge story for us for, for the patch that ICAV covered two or three years ago. Most recently, we've been hearing about Belarus in context of a of it being used as a staging ground for the Russian invasion. There was quite an astonishing report that I, I saw a couple of days ago and I decided to follow up. And I got independent confirmations that apparently at least 20 mental health professionals, psychologists, psych psychiatrists, have been detained across Belarus, mostly in the capital of Minsk and the city of Homel. No one quite knows what, why, what were the motivations. Apparently, the uh, KGB security officers have been pressuring them into uh, getting them to collaborate with them and report on their patients who might have um, opposition views. I, I talked to this one woman in Minsk who described me how her relative was detained and wasn't heard from for five days until servicing in this high security prison. So obviously it shows that what's, whatever is happening on the Ukrainian front, um, Alexander Lukashenko, who has been um, overseeing an irrepressive regime in so many ways, even more vile and atrocious than Russia's, he's still not stopping and obviously he's still very much threatened at home. That's why he keeps at it. Speaking about Russia, a third story I wanted to talk about is a recent leaked memo about Moldova. Moldova is a former Soviet state, um, often described as Europe's poorest country, wedged between uh, Ukraine and Romania. Moldova did a really great job offering help and shelter to Ukrainian refugees. 
At some point, it was hosting around 400,000 refugees. And Moldova's own population is something like 2.5 million. So apparently, Moldova was the, at some point, hosted the largest per capita number of Ukrainian refugees. At the same time, Moldova has been uh, struggling economically. And we have seen quite um, quite a number of protests, and many say that they were been instigating instigated by Moscow. And around this time, we see this Kremlin memo being leaked to several European media outlets. That memo effectively gives a window into the Kremlin policy for Moldova, laying out a very detailed plan, short-term, mid-term, long-term goals for. Uh, how Kremlin sees its relations with Moldova, effectively hoping that by 2030, Russia would effectively take control of Moldova. But but um, not by military means or anything like that, but by something, as you might call, soft power. We're talking about uh, NGOs friendly to Russia. We're talking about Moldova's Moldova joining Russia's Eurasian Economic uh, Union, a, a Russia-led uh, security organization. So it's quite quite a detailed plan, which basically shows that uh, I have to say that this this memo was reportedly drafted and drafted in 2021 before the Ukrainian war. Um, but it basically shows that, as as we have seen from. Vladimir Putin's many speeches that Moscow views Moldova as its own backyard and obviously doesn't feel that it needs or it should have any agency of its own. And basically this memo described the very detailed plans of how to bring it into its orbit by using various non-military means. And the ultimate goal for Moscow, as they put it, is to diminish the influence of NATO and the European Union and uh, to make sure that Moldova becomes a loyal Russian ally. Um, Obviously, this memo was compiled just a year after Moldova elected a new president, uh, Maya Sanzu, a young woman who until recently served at the World Bank, and he's, she's quite known for her anti-corruption credentials. She's been quite careful. Um, she's been striking quite a careful balancing act between Moscow and the EU. She is pro-EU, she's pro-Western. Before the war, she has tried to be quite diplomatic and careful dealing with Moscow, and she still is. But quite in, in quite an ominous sign, just a month ago, she, she went public about what she described as Russia's plans to stage a coup in Moldova, including hostage taking, including blowing up governmental buildings, something like that. And her claims were later confirmed by the US State Department, which also said that it has some intelligence on Russia seeking to meddle into Moldova's affairs in, in the most aggressive way. Again, it's obviously it's a big question whether there is a scope and for that kind of attack whether there is any uh, any free capacity if 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 people in moscow uh like don't people in moscow have so much to do so much on their hands in ukraine but uh we'll see how things will develop in moldova well thank you for all of that um natalia can i just ask one thing going back to the videos you've been looking at on the mutinous sort of morale of russian troops um I mean, some of some of these videos, in some of them, the troops are sort of appealing directly to Vladimir Putin in these videos. Do, do you do you think that's do you think they, they they believe that that's the right thing to do that he's going to take that seriously, or do you think that that, that it's a bit more cynical that like that's the way you, you get the press you need, you know, to, to appeal to the president? That's the way this this kind of video might be shared. I would say there are two schools of thoughts about this question, as in. 
why are people appealing to Putin? Don't they think that Putin is responsible for their problems and he is the one who created them in the first place? I think there are two possible alternatives. A, they genuinely believe that everything that goes wrong is created by corrupt, dishonest bureaucrats on the ground, whether these are civilian bureaucrats or defense ministry, military bureaucrats. And Vladimir Putin is the one who is so far away, so much above the bottle, and he just has no idea how massive things is on the ground. I would also say that I, my bet is that for those men, by the way of appealing to Vladimir Putin, they're also making themselves a little bit safer and secure because they're saying, uh, they're effectively saying, we're not against the war. We're not questioning your decision to invade. You know, we're showing you respect by addressing you, and and we're we're just want to deal with our problems, and um, um, that that that's why we're trying to address you directly as the ultimate arbiter, so to speak. That's really interesting. Thank you, Natalia. Just one more quick question from me. I mean, you said that looking at these videos, it's not necessarily clear yet whether this means that a, a collapse of the Russian army is imminent. What what? If if it was, what might you expect to see? Just more of this sort of thing, or would there be other cracks in in the edifice that you'd be looking for? What 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 might it look like? The sort of the, in the weeks before the Russian army might crumble in the field. I mean, I'm asking that because I know every single time you see one of these videos, you know, you'll see people posting on social media saying, you know, look more evidence that the Russian army can't, you know, is, is starting to fall apart. And and you, your view seems to be be a bit more nuanced than that. So that's that's sort of why I'm asking that. I would think right now we're talking about quantity. I mean, I've seen a lot of videos from the same group of men, from groups of men from the same region, um, from groups of men from the same port, uh, part of the Ukrainian front line. But we're still talking about, okay, a couple of dozens of videos. And obviously, we're talking what a couple hundred of people on the front and there should be much more videos you know if i'm i'm just trying to think like of any major social disturbance of any like big problem that a large portion of society in russia cared about in in previous years you would definitely see higher numbers that's for sure thank you very much for that natalia that was absolutely fascinating um dom and francis do you have more any more updates for us or should we go to our final thoughts well no no more update but if i could just ask natalia a question i'd be really interested in her view about the visit today of james cleverly britain's foreign secretary and tomorrow going to georgia what effect if any natalia do you think that would have for moldova and and any reaction from russia well, I'm actually, I'm having a massive deja vu moment right now because I remember how you would see all those foreign leaders uh, flying into Kiev in uh, at the end of January, in February, or, I don't know, Joe Biden making a last-ditch attempt to talk to Putin and saying, you know, we're not, you're going to invade, please stop. So that's, that sounds like a big show of support. It just sounds like, uh, you know, the EU is going to stand by Moldova, whatever happens. Do they have the capacity and capability to sort of fight this war on two fronts, if, if we can put it this way? I'm not sure. Um, for Russia, I would say it only confirms of for them in their conspiracy theory view, view worldview, it would confirm this vision of Britain as, as the sort of dark cardinal stepping in from the shadows. Because, you know, if you look at recent announcements and recent sort of sessions of weekly anger, venom and hatred pouring out from state TV, 
we can hear, we often hear that, you know, Britain is much worse than US, like it, it has been meddling a lot. Often it has to do with uh, practical support that Britain has offered to Ukraine in early months of the war. Even before the start of the war, we're talking about training of the military. I'm sure, you know, you don't know better, know better about it. We were talking about Boris Johnson being the first Western leader to visit Kiev last spring or one of the first Western leaders. So, yeah, I would say for the Kremlin, it would only confirm that Britain is very much interested in, as they say it, you know, destroy Russia and undermine its positions. Well, thank you, Dom and Natalia. We're reaching the end of our time together today. So can I just ask all three of you for your final thoughts? I would suggest maybe Dom first, then Natalia, and finally Francis. So Dom Nichols. I was in a brief this morning where Admiral John Aquilino, who's the commander of US Indo-Pacific Command, was speaking. He was in Singapore, so I watched it down the line. And now Indo-Pac Command is one of six geographic combat commands for the US military, and it's all it's all services, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps in an area of responsibility. So Indo-Pacific Command stretches from India almost to the west coast of continental US and uh, and from the Arctic to the, to the Antarctic. So, yeah, a big, a big old, big old spot. John Aquilino's pr- previously been, well, he commanded the US Pacific Fleet and, and he, he graduated from uh, Fighter Weapons School, which obviously we all know as Top Gun. So he was saying, he was speaking... The context was China, although we should not forget that the Pacific coastline of Russia is is about four and a half thousand kilometers long, borders the Sea of Japan, Sea of Okhotsk, and the Bering Sea. So, so Russia is a Pacific nation as well, and a big one. And we so we we sometimes overlook that when we think about growing ties between Russia and China and influence that Russia has in the area against Japan, for example, and so on and so forth. So we've got to remember Russia is also a, a Pacific nation. Admiral Aquilino was, was saying that, well, he said, we do not seek to contain the People's Republic of China. However, we're engaged in a robust competition. And he reiterated that U.S. policies towards Taiwan has not changed. And he reiterated the U.S. does not support Taiwan independence. He then said, but we do support peace and prosperity in the Indo-Pacific free of coercion and bullying. Competition doesn't mean no friction, nor does it mean we will acquiesce to every demand. We will fly, sail and operate anywhere international law allows. Now, he was saying all this, saying that the the context with China, President Xi has tasked his military leaders to develop capabilities to be able to invade Taiwan by 2027. That is kind of, that's that's the date we're we're all working to. But Admiral Aquilino was saying that, you know, quote, conflict is neither imminent nor inevitable, but in my role, it doesn't matter, unquote. He says he started the job in 2021 and was tasked by the Defence Secretary with deterring or if deterrence fails, being able to fight and win straight away. And he said that's not by 2027, that's by today. So it was it was an interesting, interesting talk. It was with the IISS, International Institute for Strategic Studies. You'll find it on their on their website. And just one final point. Admiral Aquilino was asked about deterrence and he says, does not, the question said, well, is not deterrence building up your forces and exercising and all this kind of stuff, doesn't that in and of itself risk bringing about the very scenario that it's designed to avoid, i.e. This, this sort of unmitigated rush to arms? And, and Admiral Aquilino said no. And he said, actually, in the region, in the Pacific, he said, we've been doing the same thing for 80 years. So if it is interpreted now as being somehow provocative, that says more about those doing the interpretation, which I think was a clear, a clear sort of jibe, uh, although he, he was at pains. He very rarely referred directly to, to China and the Chinese military. But I think he's saying, you know, we haven't done anything different. If people are now trying to make, make a big deal of it, then that's for their own, their own information narrative. So an interesting, 
interesting brief. It's only about an hour, so you'll find it on the double website. That's it for me. Thank you very much, Dom. Natalia, you've really given us well so much of your experience in your reporting. If you were to highlight any of it for our listeners or think about what you're looking at in the next few days, what would you say? Sure. Um, I'm just going to be very brief and I would say that uh, definitely what we're seeing in Rostov looks very dodgy and I would keep a close eye on investigation, on uh, what we know, how that explosion happens, whether there's anybody to claim it. As Dom pointed early, yes, it's very close to the Ukrainian border. Rostov was in fact the last place in Russia that I was at just before the war started. I was there two days before the war. But it is very close to the border, but all of the area is currently uh, controlled by Russia. It has been occupied by Russia for almost a year. So if you're talking about an attack engineered by Ukraine, if you're talking about a drone or something, it would have to cover not just 80 kilometers from the internationally recognized border to Rostov. It would have to cover more than 150, and I would need to double check it probably even more from the nearest point that Ukraine controls. So, in fact, despite looking at the map, Rostov is very much behind the rear lines. So it's it is it's quite quite a could be quite a symbolic attack. Also, the fact that it targeted an FSB building. It's not. I mean, it was the local office of the Board Guards who are technically parts of FSB. We're not talking about the FSB, you know, intelligence secret police. But it's still the name that means a lot for Russians and Ukrainians. And if confirmed again, it would be the first attack on uh, on this very much feared intelligence agency. I would so yeah, I would follow it very closely in the coming in a few coming days. Thank you very much, Natalia. Francis, would you like to give your final thoughts? Well, thanks, David. I wanted to point listeners to an interesting piece on the BBC News website by Quentin Somerville, one of their foreign correspondents. And he has spent time in Bakhmut alongside two Ukrainian army brigades defending the city's southern flank. And there's some very interesting conversations that take place there, but also some very interesting descriptions of the state of play on the ground. He underlines also a point which is remarkable when you see it in writing, which is, of course, this is not only the longest battle of the war, but it's been going on for seven months now, which, as I say, just sort of struck me reading that in black and white, because, of course, I remember when we were when we were first reporting on it. But in terms of the descriptions, it's, as I say, incredibly vivid. He talks about just the the situation of how thick with mud it is how challenging it is to traverse things there and of course that comes as no surprise given what we've been reporting on it in in recent weeks Uh, he talks about the villages around here are in a ruin handwritten signs on gates mostly in russian announce people live here a plea as much as it is a statement the streets are entirely empty apart from abandoned dogs who roam the ruins of destroyed farms and homes the landscape of war shifts in an instant the men are holed up in a small wood its trees shattered and split by Russian fire. In a month, the wood will offer them cover. For now, its bare branches expose them to surveillance drones. And he also really strikingly talks about, I think, quite how desperate the fighting is in certain places. In in one bit, he talks about how they've got, the Ukrainians are using a Maxim 
belt-fed machine gun from the 19th century in order to fight in, in one place. Now, I don't think he's saying that that's common, that they've sort of almost found this and are using it. And what's remarkable is the one of the soldiers he talks to says, it only works when there's a massive attack going on, then it really works. So we use it every week. But nonetheless, I thought a very, very striking image when contextualised about the weapons crisis we've been talking about in recent weeks. In terms of the, the battle situation, it, it's obviously incredible incredibly fierce. One of the soldiers that he talks to there, who faces, of course, the conscripted prisoners from the Wagner group, said, we we have battles every two hours. I guess a single company eliminates 50 people every every day. Then uh, Mr. Somerville says, in case of any doubt, he points out these numbers were confirmed by aerial reconnaissance. Then the quote goes on. The Russian vehicle arrives, 50 bodies come out, a day passes, 50 bodies come out again. And then he goes on to say that his own Ukrainian company lost a fraction of that number. But nonetheless, it is worth saying, and Mr. Somerville talks about this in the piece, that Ukrainian casualties are, of course, also extremely high. And whilst the numbers are are not possible to say, Russia have said that they've killed more than 220 Ukrainian service members in a 24-hour period in the battle for Bakhmut. So it paints a very interesting, I think, picture and and, and quite a a sobering one with regard to the reality, if it was ever in doubt, in in Bakhmut. And one of the soldiers even talks about how the Wagner convict army... I'll end. This is the quote. I'll be honest. It's genius. Cruel, immoral, but effective tactics. It worked out and it's still working here in Bakhmut. And he just ends, I think, with another interesting reflection. He says uh, from one of the soldiers, which is he says, I wonder myself if we should keep defending Bakhmut. On the one hand, what's happening here now is awful. There are no words to describe it. But the alternative is we give up Bakhmut and move to a natural settlement. What's the difference between defending Bakhmut or any other village? And I think that underlines another tragedy of this place, which is in and of itself, it's arguably of negligible strategic value. It's not a great civic centre to be defended because of its strategic military significance. It's not a Vicksburg or a Stalingrad, the latter of which, of course, is often talked about in the context of these kind of attritional values. But Stalingrad did wield strategic significance in and of itself due to its importance as the civic centre and it blocking the pathway to the Caucasus and its oil fields. This is more of an example of where two armies have just happened to clash somewhere. And in that sense, the First World War comparisons are more appropriate, I think. And, of course, the horrific style of trench warfare that we've seen there. But as I say, regardless, it's just a surreal feeling to me to know that we're witnessing a battle in real time that will go down in the annals of modern military history. I remember, as I say, when we were first talking about the name of Bakhmut and we had to search it on a on a map. And now its name conjures images and ideas of of great suffering and significance and who knows David perhaps we'll be talking about it as a turning point in the war one day but for who I still think it's too early to say Giselle Donnelly is a senior fellow in defence and national security at the American Enterprise Institute there she looks at national security and military strategy Previously, she served as a policy group director and staff member at the House Armed Services Committee. She was a member of the US-China Economic and Security Review Commission, and her work as a journalist includes the editorship of the Armed Forces Journal and Army Times, and the deputy editorship of Defence News. We spoke about American geopolitical strategy, Xi Jinping's upcoming visit to Moscow, and American interest, both popular and geopolitical, in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Here's our conversation. Can I start by asking just for your reaction to the news we've had this week that the Chinese president Xi Jinping is visiting Moscow? 
Could you talk us through your thoughts on that? What do you think China's trying to do here geopolitically? Well, I imagine they just have some things to straighten out, as you might say. You know, uh, China promised and and Russia agreed to a a long-term strategic partnership really just before the Ukraine war began. And there remain some questions as to how well informed the Chinese were about Putin's plans for invasion. And of course, the war has not gone according either to Xi's plans or to Putin's plans. So I think there's going to be some hard bargaining about what really will comprise the nature of the relationship going forward. There were stories a week or so ago about the Chinese providing weaponry to the Russians. And I'm sure they're, through one channel or another, providing the uh, computer chips and such like that the Russians so desperately need to maintain their weapons stocks. Trying to put ourselves in their minds, they're probably overdue for a face-to-face consultation to try to figure out where they stand and how closely aligned they want to be going forward. The Chinese, the other sort of issue that's bound to come up is the question of nuclear threats, which is the one thing particularly that uh, makes the Chinese nervous when the Russians start waving that nuclear saber around. Neither of them is in a great position vis-a-vis the Ukraine war. And I, I don't really have any idea how, what, if anything, that we know about comes out of the Chinese could reach an in for a penny, in for a pound kind of conclusion. Conversely, they could, you can see them thinking we need to limit the damage as much as possible. Could I ask, I mean, this is sort of, this is connected, but we've seen over the last year, the Russian influence waxing and waning in the Central Asian states. And I wanted to get your thoughts just on the relationship with China. Do you think that Russia's difficulties and failures in this invasion have made it much more of a junior partner to to the geopolitical power of China? Oh, very much so. Sort of, uh, you know, uh, it was de facto that way at the start of the war. But I think it's very much more so now. And you mentioned uh, Central Asia in particular. It's remarkable to see how much distance, say, the Kazakhs have put between themselves and and the Russians, which also uh, opens those states to greater Chinese influence or or certainly will tempt the Chinese to try to take a larger role in Central Asia, which is, you know, an area of great geopolitical interest to them. So the sort of relationship between Moscow and Beijing was already defined as a, you know, at best big brother, little brother relationship, but the disparity has surely grown over the past year. Can I ask, just staying with one more question on China, we know that the US backs Ukraine has been sending support and and weapons. China has attempted to try and walk a bit more of a neutral line, a middle line, not not trying to endorse either side. Do you think China geopolitically sees a sort of an opening here to be the neutral superpower that's trying to come in and sort sort this mess out, if, if you will? Well, also, China has made headlines in last week for trying to uh, patch up the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Iran. So, yeah, I think generally speaking, appearing to be the mediating power, really almost uh, as much as is possible and wherever opportunities may crop up is is part of Be- Beijing's grand strategy, if you will. I, I do believe it's that 
you know, playing such a role in the Ukraine war is a bit of a stretch for Beijing. But you can also imagine the Russians trying to leverage the Chinese in some kind of a, if they ever get to the point where uh, they need some face-saving or some help in negotiating a face-saving outcome, whatever that you know might be, depending on the battlefield circumstances of the moment. Can we turn to talk a little bit about the US and US aid to Ukraine? I'm just going to quote quickly from something you've written recently. I thought was very, very interesting, and I'd love to talk to you about it. So you wrote, quote, Ukrainian victory is also highly dependent on continued Western support, and that means, first and foremost, American support. Biden has thus far paced US weapons transfers to remain more or less in step with America's European allies. He has been especially deferential to the Hamlet-like doubts of German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. That's going to be increasingly difficult to do. Could you talk us through why you think that that, that will be difficult and increasingly difficult in the coming years? Well, it, it may improve over the course of time, but as we are seeing sort of on a daily basis, the actual state of European armed forces is pretty degenerated, both in the just in terms of the sheer number of weaponry, the condition that they're in, so on and so forth. I mean, if the United States has somewhat disarmed itself since the end of the Cold War, European militaries, and particularly the, the Bundeswehr, which used to be the one of the rocks of Cold War NATO, has really fallen into disrepair and been downsized. And it does not really look as though Chancellor Scholz's uh, Zeitenwende is, is going to produce any appreciable results anytime in the near future, indeed. If ever. Conversely, at, at some point, remilitarization and in the investment that the Poles are making will begin to tell in the overall European balance of power and balance of military power. So that leaves us for the moment with the United States being the de facto arsenal of democracy, if I can recycle that World War II phrase, simply just because we have greater capacity, could um, expand and accelerate, accelerate our production, not as fast as the Ukrainians would like, not as fast as I would like, and then not as fast as really is strategically necessary. But there's more possibility for the United States to just achieve a result by throwing money at things, which is, you know, oftentimes really the key to the solution to, to such problems as this. So I think sort of by default, if nothing else, the supplies provided by the United States, both in the sense of the number of, you know, the amount of ammunition, the number of platforms, but their quality is really critical for Ukraine acquiring the kind of counteroffensive capability that it's beginning to do, but also on the scale that it will need to in order to achieve its a more comprehensive victory against the Russians. Staying with American support, certainly from a foreigner's perspective, it seems like the the administration has been united. The the, the supporters come thick and fast. It doesn't seem that there's may be many fractures or causes for concern. But what do you think? Do you see that lasting another year, two years? Well, the the duck is paddling furiously under the water, to be sure. I, I do. Of course, there's a lot of noise from the right wing of the Republican Party. Uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis came out very strongly, again, the further support for Ukraine just yesterday. You know, he's trying to hug 
the Trump wing of the party as tightly as he can while, you know, still distinguishing himself as not quite as erratic or as eccentric as the ex-president. But that, you know, again, the uh, that wing of the party isn't yet a majority of the party, broadly speaking. So the, the sort of centrist coalition, if you will, between more moderate Democrats and more moderate Republicans, such as Senate leader Mitch McConnell, it, and even younger members is is quieter, but has the votes. The, the dog that has not barked or only barked very quietly and once or twice is the left progressive wing of the Democratic Party, which I think is um, not as motivated by their principles as bipartisanship in its support for Ukraine or its willingness to uh, um, mute its natural sort of anti-war, pacifist, anti-imperialist tendencies. Also, everyone is blessed by having Vladimir Putin as an enemy. He appears to many Americans still to be a character out of, you know, James Bond villain. So, um, support for Putin is necessarily, or the horrific actions that his troops are uh, guilty of, makes the American domestic political argument in favor of the Ukrainians, for sure. Let's take a quick step back. I think it'd be very interesting to get your thoughts on how the US, how America sees its sort of own grand strategic vision at the moment, because of course, the US is interested in what happens in Ukraine. It's also interested in what happens in the Pacific. How, what is that vision and how does Ukraine fit into that? I was very curious that you should ask uh, what brings me to Britain is a series of lectures uh, promoting a, a series of books that I'm in the course of writing, uh, deriving American strategic culture, that is the long-term habits of American strategy making from the colonial, British colonial Experience, And I do think there's been a lot of consistency, not only through the period of uh, the United States as an independent nation, but during its uh, British colonial roots, that, at least to my mind, is still very powerful and has provided a very consistent view of the world and the, the, the balance of power, the global balance of power and what America's role in that should be. So uh, I, I do think that, first of all, the, the one very strong con- consistency is a kind of global regard. The um, awareness that the balance of power in Europe is connected to the great power balance in Asia and indeed across the Eurasian continent entirely, while maintaining a you know a kind of natural transoceanic, if you will, maritime uh, perspective, and you know also we remain the prisoners, if you will, of our political principles and our ideology. Again, I'm I'm struck by the fact that the appeal to individual human liberty and national sovereignty and the legitimacy of a state as a guarantor of individual citizens' rights um, is something that is transforming our view of Ukraine from uh, something sort of like Russia, inherently corrupt. Uh, the, the obvious Western aspirations of the Ukrainians 
that people are becoming more and more aware of, again, is a powerful element in generating America for Ukraine. And that applies equally in the case of Taiwan, which has transformed itself from kind of a corrupt one-party state during its, the early years of its uh, uh, you know, separation uh, from the People's Republic and you know, uh, defending the plucky Taiwanese uh, has pretty broad appeal across both parties and, and indeed louder support across both parties uh, than even uh, support for Ukraine. So in addition to wanting to maintain a f- favorable global balance of power and our, uh, understanding ourselves as a, a global actor, there's also sort of a, a moral dimension, if you will, that isn't always perfectly fulfilled, uh, is measured by our hypocrisy to a certain degree, but still is nonetheless remains a strong motivator in American strategy making and foreign policy more broadly. Giselle, thank you so much for your time. That was absolutely fascinating. I'm delighted to contribute. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mother's Day is just around the corner, and it's time to pamper the special moms in your life. In what better way than with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets featuring clean, vegan, cruelty-free products that are safe for your skin and the planet. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been making seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. This Mother's Day, Osea has two limited-edition sets, perfect for gifting or keeping for yourself. Their Golden Glow Body Set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for silky, smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow and Go Facial Set has everything she needs to achieve spa-level results at home. They're so beautiful, you can skip the wrapping. 
For a limited time, you can save up to $48 on Osea sets, plus get free shipping. That's Mother's Day made easy. Pamper the moms in your life and get 10% off your first order site-wide with code MOM at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code MOM.